come before you this morning and we want to stir your pure minds in the things of God. Now I want to remind everybody that the purpose of the whole church is not only to glorify God and profoundly bear witness to His person and work, but also it is to stir your mind up in the things of God, to cultivate those things that you have already in your heart. And to start this week by continuing on and maybe some of the things that you've been stirred in. It's not really a place to come like a movie theater where you're dazzled and you're emotionally high and you wait till the following week to see the next sequel. No. This is about opening up the scriptures, learning from them, take those same scriptures, go home for the next week and see where you can arrive. You might say, well, Brother Steve, you really haven't done much for me. That's okay. Use it as a starting point. Brother Steve started at a certain place. You start there and see where it takes you. The Bible's a very deep book. If you stop it merely at the first stage of whatever text you're looking at and quit there, well, what good are you? A soldier is not only prepared for battle, but he is willingly to go into it and take the things that he's learned and apply them. And so we're marching onward to Zion. We're not sitting down, and we're sitting now, but we're going to get up and move forward uh, in these matters of which we speak. And so that's what I wanted to convey to you. Now, Friday, I woke up and... I didn't realize until I looked at the clock that it was 1.45 a.m. in the morning. Uh, I don't know if many of you experience things like that, where you get up really early, a little bit prematurely, but you're wide awake. So what do you do? You know, fatigue is a state of the mind. It's interesting that, you know, when you clock out at 5 p.m. and go home from work, all of a sudden you were kind of worn out, worn out, but all of a sudden you got all kind of energy just at the time when the clock strikes, you know, go home. So what I did, realizing that my mind was moving along fairly rapidly, I read, I opened up the uh, 40th chapter of the book of Ezekiel. (laughs) And I read the 40th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, and by the time I was done, my mind was fatigued. I went to bed, woke up at 7 a.m. I had a nice sound sleep. So whenever you're uh, uh, exercised in the mind, wear it out. And wear it out in a good way. Read the Bible. Now, I was very much employed in that 40th chapter because it set forth uh, Ezekiel's vision of the temple. And that's a beautiful portion of the Holy Scriptures, although it's quite difficult because it's, uh, it's just filled with detail and redundancy of posts and chambers and, and rooms and gates. And the glory of the Lord fills the temple. And it's just a, a one thing after another. But it's just kind of like the beginning of Ezekiel's vision. It's a vision. Now, I'm going to like to read something for you because in my studies since then of this great book, which is found in the Old Testament, the book of Ezekiel. The name, by the way, means God strengthens. You may be able to say it also this way, God will strengthen. And it's a great uh, reminder to all of us that the strength... Our strength lies in the Lord. It doesn't lie in our ability. We can do nothing without God's help. And so often is the words as we approach this beautiful book, we can do nothing. And that should be also on your mind as you sit down to meditate upon the word. 
somebody sometimes is intimidated by the size of the Bible, by the presentation of the Scriptures, by the enormity of the Bible. And yet, uh, we're not really told in the Scriptures to be intimidated by it. We're actually invited to read, to meditate, to draw nigh. And as we do, uh, God opens up things to us. And so we can start at maybe the point of the funnel that is the smallest. But once we enter into it, it broadens and it's beautiful. Now you can never reach bottom when you study the Bible. You can never reach the bottom. You can never be afraid of that. It's insearchable. It is beyond comprehension. And yet, at the same time, and this is probably more important than anything, at the same time, we're to be just taking it as we read it. As the old preacher once said, you can't understand the Bible unless you read it. And unless you read it, you won't know what it says. So, you know, it's interesting that in our day and age, everybody knows what the Bible says without having read it. They know what it means, but they never read it, you know. And so when we read the clear teaching of the Bible, we take it for what it stands for. Now, I admit in visions and in that particular portion of the scriptures, which are very and highly symbolic, then it takes a little bit more uh, uh, industry uh, as we compare scripture with scripture. And it's, it's a very important lesson. And if I can say this in such a way, you know, when it comes to the symbolic literature of the Bible, there's ample interpretations. It's no wonder. Um, Christianity is separated by a lot of different ideas when it comes to the highly symbolic words of the Bible, like we'll read before you today. But it's understandable because even... In the most clear and literal and plain portions of the Bible, people differ on. You see, if, you, if they differ on that which is clear and plain, it's only obvious that they will differ on that which is symbolic and, signif- and significant. Take, for instance, uh, the scripture in Psalms 5 and verse 5, where it says, The foolish should not stand before thy, the, or not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Now, if you read that scripture through the filters of our modern-day culture or modern-day evangelism, you might say, well, that certainly doesn't mean what it says. But that text says exactly what it says. It means exactly what it says. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity, but you've been brainwashed in our society. Now, I will say this, that Christianity doesn't teach hate. But the Bible teaches to hate those things that God hates. So instead of being so consumed about uh, stepping on somebody else's toes, we need to be thinking about stepping on God's toes. God says there are certain things I hate. And you can read in Proverbs chapter, chapter 6 about six things the Lord hates, yea, seven are an abomination unto Him. So we should be concerned about what God hates. And that hatred, I believe... As David said in another text, Psalms 139, he said, I hate them that hate thee. And then he goes on to say that that hatred is found in perfection. It's a perfect hatred. In other words, it's a righteous indignation. 
Uh, we, we sometimes are blindsided by biases and preferences. And of course, this is not pure. It's an imperfect uh, indignation. But the point I'm trying to make is, is that which is literal is plain as can be. And yet we still divide over that. Because somebody says, well, I don't believe God hates anybody. Because God is love. Well, it's true. God is love. But God also hates things because He hates things with a perfect hatred. The fact that He's purely love. He's pure. He's so pure that He hates that which is sin. He cannot in any way clear the guilty. God hates all forms of iniquity. And then, of course, you read over in the book of Revelation, the church at Ephesus, and there was a lot of good things about the church of Ephesus. There's a few things that they needed to be condemned about or warned about because they had left their first love. They didn't lose their first love. They left their first love and they were bidden to come back. But one of the things they were commended for is that they hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Not the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans. As a Greek word. You know, I had a young man from the Philippines call me and say, you know, what's with the Yeshua movement? They don't want us to say anything about the name of the Messiah except Yeshua, which is the Hebrew way of saying Savior, Jesus, Joshua. Well, I I told him and I responded, well, I really can't answer to their principles, but I can say this, that the name in which we worship and serve is a name which is above every name. And it's a name that's not limited to one ideal or one principle. You can call Jesus the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, the Mighty God, the Counselor. You can call Him all kinds of wonderful words that the Bible conveys. But the point is that His name is so mysterious and wonderful that why limit it? And that's exactly what denominations do. They have to limit this incomprehensible name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, anyway, the Nicolaitans were those who basically were victors or rulers over the people. In other words, over the laity. That's what that word in the Greek literally means. Nicodemus, on the other, way, on the other term, is a ruler or victor for the people. See how different those words convey meanings? And so we should never stand over the Lord's people. The ministry is just, we're shepherds. We're under shepherds. Jesus is the chief shepherd, the only shepherd, the true shepherd. And I like to remind most of our minister friends that we are merely shepherds, but we're still sheep. The only reason that we're shepherds is that we point out, we stir up, we declare, we set forth the things of God. We don't stand over God's people or in judgment of God's people. And for that matter, we don't really stand in judgment of the Word of God. The Word of God stands in judgment of us. And so, having said that, you know, I introduce you to not something literal, but something figurative. And we need to be on guard against those things which have a way of, uh, you know, leading us to a point where we define something outside the Bible because the Bible is the greatest dictionary on the Bible. You know, the words that we use should be Bible words. We shouldn't use another man's dictionary to define what the Bible speaks of. 
It's very easy. And in no place is it more greater a problem of defining what the Bible speaks of than in those things which are symbolic because people have a way of just you know, contributing various words of the Bible to things that they can, you know, that they can concoct out of their own mind or out of something they read that is outside the Bible. Oh, is that what it means? Well, you know, you got to look to the Bible. And I guess one of the greatest places you can get lost is when you compare Scripture with Scripture. You can easily define the text by the words itself, the context... And then you can compare it, but it's when you get to that part that you can easily get lost. As I said, I wanted to read something for you because I think it surmises greatly this idea of what we're about to get into. The principal design of this prophet Ezekiel, said Adam Clark, was to comfort his companions in tribulation during their captivity. You remember Ezekiel was a captive. In fact, this vision came to him when he was on the sides of the river Kibar, according to the first chapter. And that was a river in Babylon, somewhere up there in Mesopotamia. And the first vision that he had was that of the very throne of God. The first chapter all the way up through the tenth chapter exhibits the greatness of God's sovereignty. And there's no better place to see the vision of God's sovereignty when you're in trouble. Because God blesses you while you're in it. You know, He doesn't bless you out of trouble. He blesses you and enables you to go through it. And such was the case with Ezekiel. Now, remember, Daniel was a prophet who was taken captive in the first exile into Babylon. And then followed that years later, here comes Ezekiel. And then there was another exile. So there's basically three major uh, points in which the people in Judah and Jerusalem suffered at the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. He goes down to Egypt, he spoils, overtakes that great nation, and then on his way back happens to take Daniel and skilled craftsmen and artisans and those that would benefit his own nation. He just takes them home. He takes them captive. And later on he's going to come back for Jehoiakim and all the royal family with who was the king along with Ezekiel. And then years later, he's going to come back and he's going to finish the job. He's going to totally destroy Jerusalem. He's going to burn the temple to the ground. Solomon's temple was gone. And he ends up taking Zedekiah with him. And of course, you remember Zedekiah, who refused really the words of Jeremiah. Jeremiah told the people of Israel and the people of Judah, just acquiesce, basically. Go with them. And... Get married, have homes, eat, drink, and be married in the land of, uh, of uh, Babylon. That's my paraphrase. But he, he, was, uh, he, he, he was resistant and rebellious. And old Nebuchadnezzar had Zedekiah stand ahead of all his children. And he killed his children before the eyes of Zedekiah and then poked his own eyes out. And Zedekiah was bound in chains. So it was a miserable, very miserable. You know, the Bible tells things just the way they happened. 
Not necessarily the way you would have written it. But it speaks specifically the way things actually happen. It's a record of history. And in this, and, and during all that, God manifests himself now to this priest. He was a Levite, Ezekiel was. And he's going to show him great visions. And on the day that he was taken captive, he was not to mourn that loss. He was not to mourn what was to take place. Because God had for centuries warned his rebellious people what was to take place through the prophets of Isaiah and others like them. Jeremiah was still living at the time in which Ezekiel was living. But now we're talking hundreds of years, and actually before that, the Israelites were rebellious a long time coming. And God put up with it. He made a covenant with them in the days of Moses. And they agreed to obey every word of that legal covenant. And that covenant was ratified with blood. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 24. But they failed to keep up to their side of the covenant. Almost immediately, right out of the gates, they invoked God's displeasure over and over and over again. And that's why Ezekiel was told not to mourn what was to take place and what had already taken place. And the day that he was given that particular uh, statement, his wife died. And the Lord told Ezekiel, don't you mourn your wife. Don't you mourn your wife. That's not the first time something like that has happened in the Bible. And so we find ourselves in Ezekiel, and I'm going to start um, and try to be cognizant of the time. In chapter 37, because uh, there are some portions of Scripture there that I feel um, surmise uh, what should be said as a prelude to the temple itself. The temple vision is covered in eight chapters in the book of Ezekiel, from 40 to 48. And there's two main visions, although there's a series of visions, but there's two main visions, one in the very beginning and one in the end. Ezekiel is very obscure, according to the, uh, uh, Adam Clark. All have allowed who have attempted to explain his prophecies, but they never really come to a true conclusion. That's from a particular literal viewpoint. Because Adam Clark is quoting some of the great Jewish rabbis who have failed to come to any clear conclusion. In fact, they've made it a determinate principle that nobody, a Jewish young man coming up, should read the book of Ezekiel until he's at least 30 years old because it's so difficult. And he spoke of one historical rabbi who was given an enormous amount of oil for his lamps in order for him to stay up and for a long period of time was given a grant to study the book of Ezekiel. And at the conclusion of that long period of time with all those uh, oil lamps burning, he came to a negative conclusion and could not decipher the meaning of the vision of Ezekiel's temple. And I can understand that. Because, you see, you can't look at these items from a literal perspective. If you take, for instance, just the measurements of this great temple, 
that are given. If you're a civil engineer, if you're an engineer and you take those equations and those measurements, you can't come to build a pattern according to these pages. Because it's not meant to be something physical. It's something illustrious, yes. It's something grandioso, yes. It's something tremendous, it's huge. The Temple of Solomon was far inferior in terms of its size. This temple in which he speaks of is great. It's way beyond even the measurements of the literal Jerusalem. Because it's picturing something. And I might add that you know pictures and symbols in the Bible are to be understood in light of those pictures, maybe elsewhere. But here's the point. That is, they always, almost always arrive at a literal reality. That's something I missed years ago. In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken of a shepherd with sheep. Well, what's that tell us? He's drawing our mind. We're not really sheep, are we? Are we sheep? Did anybody clip their wool, you know, before they came this morning? No. We don't have four legs. We got two. But we're likened to sheep because sheep are docile. And sheep follow their shepherd. And the Lord's people are likened to sheep. But that picture uh, is meant to draw you to a literal reality. And if you act like a goat, well, then you're on the wrong side of Christ. We want to be like sheep and follow the Lord. He's the great shepherd of the sheep. In order for us to grow, we go into the green pastures and we feed upon the green pastures. And He leads us beside, what, still waters that we can drink and enjoy the precious blessings of the Lord. Well, I better leave off reading Adam Clark and just get to the Bible. Now, in the 37th chapter, we're beyond the valley of dry bones. There's another vision. Not dead bones, but dry bones. Big difference, isn't there? And that pictures the need of restoration. It pictures, it preludes the great prophecy of the restoration of the life of the church. You know, it's coming off the heels of of terrible captivity, ruin, desolation. If we spoke of what took place in the days under the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, it wouldn't be fit for children and women to listen to. That's how bad it was. It was horrendous. And it was on the heels of that type of bondage and captivity and misery and slavery and death that the prophet speaks of a great time in which those dry bones come to life by the Spirit of God. In other words, those dry bones which were lifeless or dormant in terms of their sanctity before the Lord. Not in their relationship. He's speaking about the children and the people of God. But in their vitality, in their spiritual makeup, in their true discipleship, it was waning. It was waning. One of the interesting characteristics of the prophets, not only with Isaiah, but also with Ezekiel, no matter where uh, the Lord took them and told them, they were told things that they would teach others, the people still rejected the message of the prophets. They rejected Isaiah, they rejected Jeremiah, and they rejected Ezekiel. Isn't that crazy? 
I mean, you would think with the hand of the Lord upon these men that they in turn would preach to the people and they would repent of their sins, but that's not what happened. It's just the opposite. And so God basically says, I'm finished with this. And I'm going to tell you about a time that's yet coming in which I will sanctify my people in them. And they will be sanctified before me and before the heathen. You see, they were working on the outside of the cup. The big difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament is very significant. That which God worked with among the people of God was one thing. But now He works in the people of God. That which was the qualifications for the worship service to participate in was more outward and it was more racial, if you will. In other words, you had to be of the tribe, a certain tribe of the, of the, of, of the children of Israel in order to take part in the worship services in that particular covenant. Today, the people of God are included in this great, wonderful work of God to worship the Lord out of every kindred, tribe, tongue, and nation on earth because there's a big difference. The qualifications are no longer outward but inward. And the qualifications of true worship of God and a true church of God is that which takes place in you. In other words, the Spirit of God is in you. That's why we believe in a regenerate church membership. And in order for that to be proven, is you bear testimony, you give witness to what's taking place in you by believing in Christ. Isn't that novelty? It shouldn't be, but in some places it is. Because true membership doesn't base itself on uh, profession of faith. You know, profession of faith meaning true discipleship, meaning baptism, meaning taking up your cross to follow the Lord. That's what it is based upon. He said, I will make... 22, verse 22, Ezekiel 37, I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be a king to them all. And so here we have a prophecy of one nation. Well, what's happened up until that point in, of history? Well, there was two nations, generally speaking. There was the, the Judeans to the south and the Samaritans to the north. But the Samaritans were a mixed breed. They were really considered fully Gentiles. And so when you think about this, two nations, you have to look at it in the light of the way the Bible prefigures it, and that is that they were Gentiles by and large. The Judeans would not accept the northern tribes because they were a mixed breed. Even Paul the Apostle bragged on the fact that he was of the tribe of Benjamin. So you had the two tribes to the south, which included Judah and Benjamin. They were the pure bread, if you will. <clears throat> and when Jesus said salvation was of the Jews, that's exactly who he was referring to. But of course he presented truth, the New Testament truth that he ushered in before the Samaritan woman, you remember. And the Samaritan woman was told by the Lord himself that the Father seeketh such to worship him in what? In spirit and in truth. No more in this particular mountain over here in Jerusalem or in the mountain in which they were used to worshiping in, Mount Gezerim, it would be no longer two people or two nations. One nation. And that one nation is cultivated 
in the nation, the chosen generation, the Apostle Peter speaks of. I don't like Christianity that's kind of split up by racial divisions. You know, like the Korean Baptist Church or the Anglican Baptist Church or the, uh, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think that is anti-thinking when it comes to the New Testament church. I understand that people enjoy being with their own kind, but they're taking us back under law service. Why take us back under law service? When God speaks about a time, excuse me, where there is one nation and one king, one king, that's the Lord Jesus. Now, in the book of Ezekiel, you read about David, the prince. But it's speaking of the Lord Jesus. David's dead. In fact, he's been dead three to 400 years when this is written. So he's speaking about something greater. And of course, we run into the day of Pentecost and we hear Peter on, his, on the day in which he's preaching, when the Spirit of God is being poured out. And he's speaking about a Jesus whom they crucified, this same Jesus whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Christ. And then he sat down, having ascended into heaven, upon his throne. Christ is ruling today. Now, much of what we speak about in the book of Ezekiel, the, the reason why I believe it pictures the church age, is because a lot of the detail given in the temple, reflects things that may not necessarily be in heaven itself. Although I will admit, you know, one thing may be an extension of another. So in other words, the church in the wilderness during the Old Testament may prefigure the church today, which may prefigure a uh, further extension of that into eternity. I think it's very important not to just differentiate the Scriptures in such a way that it has to be one way and nothing else. When we think about the Lord, which is, which was, and which is to come, you see that apse, that, that, that glorious unveiling of the person of Christ and all His majesty, the same yesterday, today, and forever? Well, in a sense, the spiritual kingdom of God, which we are a part of right now, will ultimately be extended further into eternal heaven. And that's why the kingdom of Christ is from everlasting, you see. It's not something that is prefixed, although the church age itself may be defined as a predetermined period of time, a fixed period of time, because there's a certain point where the church age ends. Right? Do I hear amen to that? And that church age, right now in which we live, Jesus Christ is on the throne and we are reigning with Him. How do we do that? Well, we're priests and we're kings. That's what the Bible says that we are. And so there's one nation, one land upon the mountains of Israel... Now, I like that particular aspect of the mountains because it draws our minds to another very symbolic portion of Scripture. Of course, that's in the book of Daniel. But I wanted to go here to the 40th chapter when he begins this vision concerning the temple itself. 
And he says, In the visions, verse 2, of God brought he me into the land of Israel and set me upon a very high mountain, by which was the fame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass. And so immediately, this is a picture of the Lord Jesus. But he brought me to this high, very high mountain. And in the book of Daniel, chapter 2, and verse 35, you can read about how Daniel spoke of four kingdoms. They were the kingdoms of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. You remember? That's what we're talking about. In which Ezekiel, that's the setting right now. But then he goes further and he speaks about the Medo-Persian or the Persian Medio, Media uh, kingdom which followed the kingdom of Babylon. And then he talks about a third kingdom which was Greece. And the great Alexander the Great conquered the whole world and it's included there in the book of Daniel. And then there's the fourth kingdom and that was the Romans. And that kingdom, of course, was divided into two according to the book of Daniel. But it was during the reign of those kings that another kingdom would come and dash in pieces that kingdom. And that kingdom was the spiritual kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Bible says that it's a stone, the stone which would destroy the image or the kingdoms of that world at that time. And that stone was the Lord Jesus Christ, pictured here in the same mountain. It's in that mountain pictured in Daniel chapter 2, and it's the mountain here. It's a very high mountain. It's not talking about Jerusalem. Jerusalem was a mountain, yes, but it's a low mountain. There are low-level mountains. And there was multiple mountains. That's why it's plural in one case and singular in another. But it's still a picture, isn't it? It's a picture of a very high mountain. And that's the kingdom of God. It's a mountain from which it cannot be shaken. It it cannot be removed because it's God's mountain. And we have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God. Today, the church is the answer to that. It's the fulfillment of that. At at least as far as we understand it is. And it's been the understanding of men for centuries that the church of God would be the answer of this great spiritual temple, temple which was given in a vision to Ezekiel. And then something that the Lord's people at that particular time who were waning in, in distraught and in trouble had something to lay hold of and who hope in that something futuristic would be a return. And now I don't want you to mix this temple vision that you read about later on this week in your homework, that it would be the answer of what took place under Zerubbabel when they did come back. There was a return from the land of captivity. And they did rebuild a temple in the days of Nehemiah. But that far was inferior to this one of which we speak about that's yet to come. Well, let's move on. Notice what it says. It says, moreover, I will make a covenant. So we have one nation. uh, We have one king. No longer two kingdoms. We have one, David my servant shall be king over them, speaking of the son of David, the Lord Jesus himself. And they shall dwell in the land that I give unto Jacob my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt, and they shall dwell therein. 
and their children and their children's children forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. You see, the prophecy is set against the idea of what was taking place in the Old Testament. So even though it's something new and marvelous and much expansive, yet it's, it's, it's reminiscent of the things that took place in the past, like my servant Jacob, you know, which is speaking about the people of God. And you can follow that throughout the Scriptures. And the land, the land that was given to them, the promise of the land yet to come, is fulfilled in the person of the Lord Jesus. He said, Moreover, I make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant. And so the covenant we have now, a reminder of something that is not something built uh, between me, God, and you, the people. It was an everlasting covenant, which means the beginning of which precedes the existence of time and creation. Isn't that neat? We think about the covenant of grace from before the foundation of the world. And that covenant was made between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. And somebody asked, well, where do I fit in? Where did God make an agreement with me like He did those at Mount Sinai? Well, you're the recipients of that great covenant. You've been included in the promise of God. You've been blessed to be chosen, a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you should show forth the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. And the tabernacle also, He said, He said, I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. Can we say that about the literal aspect of the sanctuary in the Old Testament? What was significant about the sanctuary in the Old Testament? It was a place where God dwelt with His people. He made a place where He would dwell with those people. And that word dwell, the root word of which is where we get the word Shekinah. The Shekinah glory. That beautiful, spiritual, fire by night and cloud of day. The Shekinah glory, the very presence of God was manifested in the Shekinah glory because He dwelt there between the cherubs at the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Well, let me just close now with just presenting various main points of this great temple. And in the 40th verse, we've already mentioned that it is a great temple that is built on a very high mountain. That's a beautiful aspect. Secondly, this temple will have a prince. That prince is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It is His temple. He's zealous over that temple. It's not up to us to innovate when it comes to God's temple. It's not up to, um, uh, unto us to draw the pattern the way we want it to be drawn. It's not unto us to change the pattern in which He had, has given, in, especially in the New Testament. And this is what we draw from these beautiful uh, architectural features uh, throughout these pages. And it's just too much to just lay hold of right now. Notice what he says to, the, to, to Ezekiel. He said, The man said unto me, the Lord Jesus, the pre-Calvary, the pre-incarnation, if you will, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus, Son of man, behold... 
with thine eyes and ear with thine ears and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee for to the intent that I might show them unto thee art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And so he was taught that he may teach. And so we see that in the New Testament temple of God that God provides men who are ordinary men called to preach the gospel and to set forth and declare and to show the work of God from before the foundation of the world and declare the unsearchable riches as Brother Chuck had mentioned in his prayer. And his brother, he, he, he prayed that, uh, that the preacher may speak the unsearchable riches, the treasures of glory in the person and work of Christ. And Brother Rob, he prayed that we may endeavor to keep the unity of the faith or the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. He spoke about faith being the most important aspect to this great temple which we're a part of. And so that's why when you go home today, you're going to take the Bible with you and you're going to read it. This is a lesson that's presented and set forth for you. You're to be like the Bereans who search the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Let's try what the minister says before the Word of God. Let's take what the minister says who stirred up our pure minds and set it before the Word of God. And let's test it. Let's prove it to be so. And if it is, we'll say amen to it and we'll follow it. You see? That's what this is about. We're not experimenting here on the Word of God. This is not a scientific project to determine something new to fascinate us. It's something that has been presented for us, and now we set it forth. We declare. And so onward we go. This beautiful temple has a roof gate. Can you believe that? It's got a roof gate. It's got all gates all around this great temple. The wall is a border. It's got a border. It's a big, thick border. It's not so ornate, but that which is about it is, like the post, the archways, the windows. Well, there's a border to the house of God. That's right. And those outside the border are not in the church of God. The church of God is separate. It's apart from the world. The world is outside the borders of the holy city of God. And God's protected He's protecting his people by that great border. And that border, the very walls, the bulwarks of salvation, these are things that are principled. You know, in the pastoral letter, the Apostle Paul writes to Timothy and tells how to behave in the house of God, which is the, uh, what, the house of the, the church of the living God, with pillars. And that's a beautiful picture against the great Greek architecture in these fascinating temples that existed in Timothy's day. He said the church is just like that. It's a great temple, but it's not physical. It's not literal. It's a, it's a beautiful spiritual house made up of lively stones. It's a habitation of God through the Spirit. And anyway, he speaks about these gates. And in these Gates, there's the outer court, the inner court, the outer court. I don't, I don't quite understand some of it. There's the north gate, there's the south gate, and there's the east gate. How beautiful is that? He speaks about that east gate later on in the 44th chapter. The east gate was the gate closest to the tabernacle or the furnishings of the temple in which the sacrifices were made. It is the east gate by which the Lord Jesus Christ will enter in. 
and provide Himself a sacrifice, a lamb slain, you see. It is through that gate, of course, the Lord enters. And in this particular vision, you'll read how that east gate, only the Lord entered the east gate. Now the Lord's people entered the north gate, and they went out another gate. Or if they came in the south gate, they went out the north gate. It's, I don't quite understand that. But it draws a comparison and contrast with the Lord who is alone, the one who enters the east gate, and who alone exits the east gate. Yes, He exited the east gate. And I guess that may symbolize some things. I don't know exactly. But it may symbolize the fact that we have a continuing city. And that the Lord Jesus Christ is not dead, buried in the grave. That He's alive. He has come. He has presented Himself. He has done the work. And then He ascended into heaven. And He lived. He liveth ever to make intercession on behalf of His people. It's not a closed door in a sense. It's a revolving door, if you will. He comes and goes. But in this vision later on, that gate is shut. It's shut. It's closed. It'll be open later on, but for the longest time it'll be closed because the work of the Lord is closed. In other words, it's finished. It's done with the seal. He's put, a, he's, he's put transgressions in a cell, and He's sealed the cell like a prison, never more to escape, if, if you will. If you will. God has abolished death, sin, and Satan. He's destroyed it. So we serve a risen Savior, but a victorious one. It's got something to shout about. Is that right? we got something to shout about. We can look death in the eye. We can look down at death because Christ rose from the grave. You see, if you went to Palestine today, you're not going to find bones of the Lord Jesus Christ. No. He's gone. Isn't that what the angel told Mary? He's gone. He's risen. He's no longer here. See the grave clothes, neatly wrapped and set aside. Well, in this great temple, there's other beautiful aspects to the ornate detail. There's cherubs, like there's posts here, these fluted columns. Well, they had columns and posts, and they had pictures of cherubs and the face of a man and a face of a lion on each side of it. And isn't that beautiful? Because cherubs were the same angelic hosts that protected the way of the tree of life back in the east of the garden, the Garden of Eden. You remember after Satan, excuse me, yeah, after Satan deceived Eve and Adam fell, that they were banished from the garden. They were sinners. They were drove out by God. Oh, it's harsh, isn't it? It's harsh language. Why would God do that? Why would God drive man out of his own garden? Because he was sinful. God won't dwell with sin. And he's going to protect the way of the tree of life from sin. And it's an act of mercy. Because that old Adam took part of that tree of life. We may have assumed that he would have lived forever in such a state. And so God set a cherubim with a flaming sword to protect the way of the tree of life. And there I see great mercy and I see great justice because God would slay any man that came that way to prevent, to prevent that mercy that God provided to be destroyed in that sense. And here in this beautiful vision, it's not a literal vision of angel cherubs. It's a picture of something. And it's picturing the fact that there's no longer enmity between God. Here's the angelic being with a face of a man. There's fellowship now. 
There's unity, there's atonement, there's mercy that's provided, you and I, that we can come boldly to the throne of grace and we can find help in the time of need. God is our friend. He's a fellow servant. He's a fellow. He's one with us because of the mercy of God in Christ. Don't you see? And it's portrayed here. Now, obviously, these pictures, the man and the lion, are a picture of the lamb and the ferocious king, the lion, Lord Jesus. It's a picture of his, of his humility. The fact that he humbled himself to the form of a servant and became obedient even unto death. He was the lamb who was sacrificed for us. So we have a picture of this cherub with the face of a man, a humble man, and the face of a lion, a ferocious lion. Isn't it wonderful to know the king of kings as the lion of the tribe of Judah? And isn't it wonderful to meditate upon the glorious condescension of the Lord Jesus who was humbled, who humbled himself as a man? And then, of course, there were uh, palm trees. Not only the cherubs imprinted upon these posts, but there was palm trees. And that palm tree is a beautiful picture of the extent and of the advancement of God's kingdom because they're so beautiful and they're, they're large and they envelop so far, you see. And, of course, that picture is really broadened with the river that, that flows from beneath the throne. It just it starts as a little something. And then it grows. The further it gets out from beyond the river, or excuse me, the throne of God, it gets deeper from the ankles to the waist and to the point where you can swim in it. And that's a beautiful picture in the 44th chapter of Ezekiel of how God's kingdom is advanced during the church age. But these palm trees are beautiful because it pictures the Lord when He first entered, if you will, that last week. The last week. And John, it's recorded in John chapter 12. He enters Jerusalem on Sunday, the week before he rose from the dead. And when he entered in, he entered walking, if you would, not walking, but riding on the, the ass, of the colt of an ass, the young ass. Never a man rode upon this ass before. And he rode on as the people, as the people laid out palm branches. It's a picture of his kingly ascent to his throne. But he must first, of course, go by the way of the cross. Now bear with me a while, and I'll close. Just want to hit these highlights. What's significant about that, and I want to highlight this in John chapter 12, is this. That the Bible says that the people went forth to meet him. The common, ordinary people went forth to meet him. You see how contrary in nature Christ is to the, to the idea of Him lording over His heritage in such a way that they are in fear of Him, that they're intimidated by Him. Why, they were in fear of the Jewish state at that time. They were in fear of the law of the Pharisees because if you followed Jesus, if you believed on Him, you would be put out of the synagogue. And so they lived in a state of fear. And when Jesus came in, riding on the colt of the ass, He said, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, thy king cometh. You put your trust in God. There's a lot of people today, they fear the state of man. Don't you fear the state of man? I fear God, not man. And so, that's a beautiful picture. That imagery is set forth here in this temple. We're not talking about something literally. 
in terms of how this vision is given to Ezekiel, but in terms of what it portrays or what it literally points to, it is certainly literal. And it's beautiful. And so we move forward, and the presence of the Lord is there in this temple. And it's continuing there. And of course, the pattern is set. And then, of course, in the 44th chapter, he talks about the priest. And how important are the priests in the temple? Why, they go way back. And of course, the priests administered the ordinances of the temple. And they're critical function of how the temple and tabernacle work. And so, of course, he's drawing this picture against the backdrop of priests. But something is significant because the principles change. That's the beauty of this temple. It's so marvelous. There's detail from the past, but yet it's given within a vision of change and something that you can't really lay hold of, but yet so powerful. Like just as a, for instance, these priests were allowed to defile themselves with the dead father or mother or son or daughter or brother. And they could go and be, again, functional workers in the temple. Well, that's a steep contrast from Leviticus 21 where a priest could not at all touch the dead even among his own family. And I just draw that attention uh, draw your attention to that fact because it speaks of a principle that's different. There's a change. And of course, the New Testament conveys this change in very broad and specific language, and that is all that which was before is done away. But this is, ex- is, is explaining to the people in captivity that there's change coming, that there's new principles coming, and it's not going to be fashioned directly after that which you're, you're aware of. But the priests, their names were given in verse 15, and among other places in this great, great vision, as the sons of Zadok. And how significant is that? Well, these sons of Zadok are often referred to uh, recurring in the Old Testament because they are the sons of Zadok. And you had the sons of Zadok throughout the history of the lineage of the Levites. But if you trace it further in the beginning, when David was the king, you remember when he fled from Absalom... What do you remember about that? A lot of priests fled with him. You know, you read a lot of the Psalms, like Psalm 84, some of my favorites. Psalms that depict the longing for the tabernacle. And a lot of times, right there, it's situated within the authorship of people like Asap. And people come along and say, this couldn't be authored by Asap, because Asap was a priest given to the work of the sanctuary. How could he be distant from the tabernacle? How could he long for something that he's part of? But they forget and they neglect the fact that when David fled, he took all the Levites with him. And so one can only imagine that Asap was part of that group, and he longed, just as well David did, for the courts of the house of God. Well, Zadok was a priest that David referred to during that same period and said, Zadok, you take the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem where it belongs. And so Zadok did that. He was a righteous man. That's what this word means. Zadok means righteousness and means justified. And the people of God, we today are priests. We fulfill the sons of Zadok. We are, spiritually speaking, and we teach Now, what do we teach? 
as the sons of Zadok. What did he teach? What were they supposed to teach? And a large portion of the book of Ezekiel is given to the abominations of the priesthood. It was abominable before God what they did. They abused the priesthood. Well, they were supposed to teach the difference, verse 23 of the 44th chapter, between the holy and the profane. The ministers of God are are supposed to draw the distinction between that which is right and that which is wrong. Between that which is holy and that which is unholy. That's what the preachers are designed to do. And he was referring to a day in which will come when the ministers will stand and draw the distinction between that which is right and that which is wrong. Ordinary men, sinners called out of darkness, like Paul the Apostle, who was guilty of the most vilest of crimes, who himself said, I'm the chief of sinners, and yet who himself stood as a representative of Christ himself in preaching and teaching about the sanctity of God's house. Well, we've already mentioned the waters and the boundaries, and let me close at the very end, and I hear a great amen out there, of this great vision. He's going to call this temple by a new name. I love that because all this imagery you will find in another great book of the Bible. This imagery is so profound and mysterious and illustrious that it's matched no no other place but in the book of Revelation. And you recall that the churches in Revelation were giving promises like the church at Philadelphia, a promise. And if they were to keep the word... And if they were not defile the name of Christ, they would honor the name of God, then they would be blessed by being overcomers. And they were promised with a a promise of a new name. It's purely symbolic. But we find the very root of it back in the Old Testament. And in the very last verse of this great vision, we read this from Ezekiel. The scripture speaking of this great temple, it was round about 18,000 measures. And the name of the city from that day shall be, the Lord is there. Jehovah Shammah, the Lord is there. He's not going to be, He is. The Lord is with His people. I remember when the Lord gave the commission to His apostles, what did He say? In Mark's account, the Lord working with them. The Lord is with us. He's No matter where we go, no matter how difficult, no matter where you've been, Somebody says, I'm unqualified because of my past. The greatest picture in the New Testament of what I speak in terms of the Lord's closeness is found right at Calvary. 
You know, you had three crosses, two of which you could say were crosses of shame and ill repute and injustice. Excuse me, justice. Because they suffered for crimes they committed. Those two thieves were guilty. They were guilty. They were malefactors, who knows what else. But they were thieves and they were guilty. And so what they deserved on their crosses was something that was just and it was meted out appropriately. The punishment fit the crime. But the man in the middle... He bore the shame of the cross... He bore the reproach of that shame. But that was a cross of justice. Because God meted out punishment that was due us on His own Son. But what I find amazing in that picture is the thief who at one point was in the same with the other thief in the condemnation of the man in the middle, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were in the same teeth. In other words, they were of the same indignant mood against the Lord Jesus, in opposition to the Lord Jesus. And yet something happened. And all of a sudden, the thief on the cross rebuked the other and said, this man has done nothing amiss. What we get is our just desserts, basically. But this man has done no wrong. All of a sudden, he was changed by the miraculous power of God. And here's what he said. He said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Isn't that amazing? And Jesus said, this day... Thou shalt be with me in paradise. I'll tell you what, that to me is the centerpiece of all that we are as Christians in this time world, this church age in which we live. We are nothing more than thieves by nature, but we've been blessed by the sovereign, interposing grace and will of God Almighty. He shed mercy on us that we no longer bear the image of the earthly, if you will. But we bear the image of the heavenly. We are new men in Christ Jesus. We are walking with the Lord. And I'll tell you something. We lay this body down. We are in immediately uh, in the paradise of God, with God. But the, the idea and the joy of knowing the presence of God is right now is right now. And I pray the Lord will bless you today with these thoughts. Go on home and study those chapters and may the Lord bless you.